The mask is off. People intuitive enough to at least pay attention are waking up to the woke delusion. Those who believed the social justice movement had anything to do with helping racial minorities or the oppressed saw in shocking fashion on October 7th that these same people had little to say about what Hamas did to Israel, but a lot to say about Palestine. Kind of odd. Shouts of free Palestine from the same people who took down missing posters of Jewish children kind of make you stop and wonder. Maybe they're not really after humanitarian love of others like they say. One young law student at Harvard illustrates this well. Her odd silence about Israel and support of Palestine while also taking down posters of missing Jewish children makes you think maybe this person's really just a bigot. Yeah, I think right now, if you turn on any mainstream channel, you'll see the stories of Israelis on every screen you look to. And so I think for me, I will continue to use my platform to uplift the voices of Palestinians. I mean, it's almost as if from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free purposely refuses to acknowledge the sovereign country in between the river and the sea. Then you have the perfectly logical queers for Palestine movement that has conveniently forgotten that human rights abuses happen about every second in Palestine, especially in the gay community where you can get 10 years in prison if you're caught being gay. It's almost as if the social justice movement doesn't really need to be about justice. As long as they can find something in society, they'll chant protest, mob, and riot. But some are paying attention now. Even those who felt like BLM was a good idea, even now find it hard to watch BLM Chicago post paragliding terrorists on their ex accounts and then support them. Even some pride flag waving activists are wondering why their friends are supporting a country that makes their existence illegal. But the people are retarded. Thomas Sowell perhaps gives us an answer to this in his book, A Conflict of Visions. In it, he shows that the reason we disagree about politics has little to do with economics and even less to do with brave thoughtfulness. We disagree about politics because we disagree about human nature. The postmodern neo-Marxist left believes, as Rousseau did, that men are born free, but everywhere are in chains. They have a naive and utopian vision of human nature that believes humans are blank slates, and if it weren't for institutions imposing upon them, they would thrive. Contrast that with the conservative, and I'd argue much more biblical version of human nature. And you find that we believe that people are born with both the capacity for good and evil, and will often blame institutions rather than cling to virtue, like personal responsibility, objective truth, morality, and goodness, and in the process, point the finger at others rather than point the finger back at ourselves. Once again, the conflict in Israel is a perfect example of these two competing theories on display. The reason you can have a group of ivory tower intellectuals and career politicians shout free Palestine in the wake of the most horrific ethnic cleansing since the Holocaust is because they have a liberal progressive view of humanity. They believe that Hamas would be perfectly loving and great dudes to drink a beer with if it weren't for Israel's neo-colonialization. Even if this were about land, which it isn't, Palestinians have no claim to the land that belonged to the Jews thousands of years before Islam even existed. And Israel has the right to stage a military campaign in order to eradicate a terrorist organization that attacked them first. These obvious facts are making it uncomfortable to be a leftist in America. I've heard multiple people say it, reality always wins. It has a tendency to slap you in the face no matter how much you deny it. But the more you around, the more you're gonna find out. Here's the real question at the end of the day. Which view more accurately represents the reality of human nature, left or right, Christian 
or secular. When you finally get around to coming to the conclusion that not only the Bible has the right answer, but that the wrong answer is incredibly bloody and deadly for society, I hope two things will happen. I hope Christians will recognize the need for the culture wars. And then two, I hope people will once again return to Scripture, even if deep down they have a bigoted hatred toward religion and Christianity in particular. And I hope when they return to Scripture, they will find their salvation and that society really needs it. We'll talk about that and more today on Indie Thinker. Welcome to the show. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And don't forget, if Indie Thinker has been beneficial to you in any way, if it's been entertaining, hopefully, maybe giving you something to uh, go post about on Instagram, or maybe even taught you something, God forbid, uh, then I wanna highly encourage you to take a next step. If you've benefited from the program, if you enjoy what you hear here, if it's just encouraged you down deep in your soul, then I want you to think about giving a year-end gift to Indie Thinker. Now, you can do that by going to the description of this podcast where you'll find a link for giving, but you can also do that by going to the link that's on the screen right now. By doing that, you not only help us continue what we've been doing here at Indie Thinker, but you help us grow to create new shows and even great documentaries and films and other things that I think will help you think for yourself. So if you believe in that vision and if you've been benefited by what we've done in the past, then I highly encourage you to take just a moment, of course, after you enjoy this show, like, share, and subscribe, uh, after you've done that, to make sure to go and give a tax-deductible donation to Indie Thinker and all the great work that we're doing here. At the age of 54, Matthew Perry, the actor and Friends star, passed away. He was found dead in his hot tub after some physical exercise. Now, he does have a history of heart issues, and so it is believed that it is possible that a heart attack killed him. We don't know if he had like a cardiac event and then face planted in the hot tub, and that's what killed him, or if it was just a heart attack, or if because Matthew Perry had an issue in the past and had a history of substance abuse, if that's potentially what played a part in his death. Now, I don't want to engage in too much conjecture here, but I do want to talk about it because I believe that there is something redemptive from the conversation about Matthew Perry's activism, even a little bit of his life, and more importantly, even his death, and, and what we might be able to learn about that. Somebody once said that death is one of life's greatest teachers. So I know that early on there are people who will respond negatively to a conversation about what potentially caused Matthew's death and then also uh, talking about his death in general um, because there are a lot of people who think because he was a friend star that he was also their friend so they have the right to kind of freak out about anybody who wants to do anything other than praise him for his great career. Now, I do want to take time to do that because I do think he had a great career and he was um, certainly a, a wonderful talent. But I also think that there is some redemptive conversations that we can have about his life as I already suggested. Now, in the information age, I also recognize that I run the risk of talking about Matthew Perry and entering into celebrity gossip or seemingly so when there's a myriad of other things that perhaps are vastly more important. You know, I could do a whole podcast about Jesus or classic literature, and of course, I would love to do that, but you clicked on or are listening to 
uh, a podcast that has Matthew Perry in it, and perhaps that's why you did it. And so um, even if I don't specifically speak about things that are much more transcendently important than the uh, death of one individual person, I do believe that there is an important conversation lurking underneath that we need to be willing to have. So yes, we want to, first of all, offer condolences to the family, and we want to offer those to anybody that was close to him and say, this obviously is a difficult time, regardless of any of the things that I'll say here. And thoughts and prayers do go out to each and every one of those people. I even took the time to pray for his family uh, last, last night as I was thinking about this, this segment in the show. Um, but there is a couple of things that I think are important to note about his life that I think will help fuel future conversations about the kind of activism that Matthew was involved in, but also uh, the life in which he lived. So first and foremost, I wanna just pay attention to the thing that we all know him for, and that is that he is a comedian. And I think that this is important to to mention in light of such a tragic event, because Matthew provided joy and laughter to a bunch of different people, and frankly, Life is filled with a bunch of difficulties, a bunch of drama and baggage and sometimes unnecessary uh, drama. It's important that we have these kind of people who can make us laugh. I think actors are the storytellers of our age. They're not just entertainers. I think that they can craft stories that impact and shape the way we view culture. And I think comedians especially fall into that kind of bracket of a special kind of actor who can bring joy to the lives of a average person. And I think that there's something praiseworthy about that. And then secondly, I also want to point out that in Matthew's uh, memoir, he spoke about a conversion experience of sorts that I think is really interesting to talk about. And it will factor into kind of what I want to say um, in the conclusion of this segment of the show. But, but I want you to hear in his memoir what he had to say while he was struggling with addiction. Uh, one of the things that happened to him, and it says this, while detoxing from Xanax, Perry felt both physically and emotionally awful, filled with shame and guilt. He wrote, I frantically began to pray. God, please help me. Show me that you are here. God, please help me. Perry then noticed a small golden light in the air growing bigger and bigger. I was starting to feel better, he recalled. And why was I not terrified? The light engendered a feeling more perfect than the most perfect quantity of drugs I had ever taken. That's kind of interesting. Feeling euphoric now, I did get scared and tried to shake it off, but there was no shaking this off. It was way, way bigger than me. My only choice was to surrender to it. For the first time in my life, I was in the presence of love and acceptance and filled with an overwhelming feeling that everything was going to be okay. I knew now that my prayer had been answered. I was in the presence of God. Bill Wilson, who created AA, saved, was saved by a lightning bolt through the window experience where he felt he was meeting God. This was mine. I stayed sober for two years based solely on that moment, Perry continued. God had shown me a sliver of what life could be. He had saved me that day and for all days, no matter what. He had turned me into a seeker, not only of sobriety and truth, but also of him. He had opened a window and closed it as if to say, now go earn this. Nowadays, when a particular darkness hits me, I find myself wandering back to that experience. Was that just Xanax insanity? But quickly I returned to the truth of the golden light. When I am sober, I can still see it, remember what it did for me. Some might write it off as a near-death experience, but I was there and it was God. Now I love that, and you know, in light of 
Halloween being right around the corner, I would say that's almost spooky, right? But there's a better word for it. It's, it's powerful and it's supernatural. Now, I would have liked much more if beyond just the word God, which can just mean a, a number of different things, if it was a little bit more direct. I mean, um, Bill Wilson, uh, the AA guy, uh, makes no mistake about the fact that his program is derived from Christian scripture and Christian principles. Um, and the reason this is so important is that this is not just to undermine what happened with Perry or anything like that. But it is to say that undeniably, when you can embody a experience like that beyond just the experience and the phenomenology of that, but actually embody it in a person and in a relationship with a real living God that speaks to you and that you speak to him, um, if you can do that, it, it really helps whatever that experience was to stick around. Let me give you um, kind of a for instance for this. If you go to Disney World, you can remember that. I mean, you can remember that your whole life. You probably remember going to Disney World as a kid. Hopefully you've boycotted them and maybe going somewhere else these days. But you remember that as a young kid, but some of those experiences don't always stick around. You just kind of generally remember, hey, I think it was fun and I went there. I remember going there as a kid and try to associate some kind of positive emotion with it. That's fine. But that's way different than interacting on a daily basis with your kids or with your wife. Now, the question comes, why? Simply because that kind of personal interaction and that relationship is way more meaningful than a place or an experience. And if you know somebody, you are way less likely to question whether or not that person exists. Like, you will never convince me, no matter how much evidence you throw in my face, that my wife doesn't exist. Why? Because I've met her. And all I'm saying is, is that that experience, as profound and, and cool as it is, would have benefited from the knowledge of that God being the Jesus of the Bible or whatever God that he expects it to be. But I think to drill down into more specifics from that experience would have really helped. And that kind of brings us to the next point, is that Matthew Perry's life is also a bit of a cautionary tale. Now, let me be really careful here. I don't want to suggest that I know how he died. I don't. I don't know if he was high. I don't know if years of drug use had caused such wear and tear on his body that it had made his heart weak so that after physical exercise and then getting in the hot tub, that combination of things really played a part in his death. I don't know if it was drug-induced. I don't know if he was high when he had this cardiac event. There were no drugs found at his house. However, there were prescription drugs, which can be sometimes just as lethal, especially if taken with alcohol or anything else. There were anti-anxiety pills and anti-depression drugs found at Matthew Perry's house. Now, again, we don't know if any of that played a role in his death. But even if we take kind of how he died to one side and just look at the life and some of the way Perry talked about addiction, if we just look at that, we can maybe kind of formulate an understanding of perhaps the ways in which we're not really having a healthy conversation about addiction in the present. And so to enter into evidence to that, to that claim, I want to show you a interview that Matthew Perry had on the BBC, where also he was kind of debating a guy named Peter Hitchens. I'll get to who Peter is in just a moment, but here's a clip of Hitchens and Perry talking about addiction from about nine years ago. Check it out. The point is to stop drug 
uh, drugs and alcoholism by just nev people well, never well, starting? Well, you too believe in this fantasy of addiction in which people lose... Fantasy your, of addiction. A complete fantasy, fantasy well, in which, in which people lose, 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 the, lose, lose all, all, all power over themselves and, bec and become victims of this terrible, frightening disease. But right after, now you're quoting... Let me finish. This is what you believe, this terrible, frightening disease mm -hmm. after which they cannot stop taking drugs. If you really believe that, yeah. then you would presumably think the best thing would be that they never ever came in contact with those of drugs. Course. Of course. Wouldn't it therefore be wise to deter them from doing so yes. by a stern and effective criminal no. justice system which <laughs> actually persuaded them it was unwise to right. take the drugs in the first place? When, when do I get to point. speak? Right. I'm dying really to speak. If you really you believe speak, in it, speak, you'd speak. agree with when me. Speak, speak, speak. When can I speak? Speak. <laughs> Okay, so... I didn't come here to be quiet. <laughs> well, neither did I. No, I, didn't, so I, I didn't come here to listen to ludicrous things like that either. So, well, you tell me why it's ludicrous if you're so close. I will. I will. Look. The American look. Medical Association diagnosed it a disease in 1976, so you're saying that that's incorrect? Look, people... Are you saying that that's incorrect? The medical profession is constantly doing extraordinary things. The now, some of you recognize the name Hitchens there, and this is the brother of... Christopher Hitchens, the well-known atheist. Now, Peter Hitchens isn't very well-known in the United States, but he is very well-known in England as a great thinker, as a politician, and to almost the exact opposite of Christopher Hitchens. He's known as a Christian and a conservative. Uh, but he is well-known in England, and that's why he's on this program here debating back and forth with uh, with Matthew Perry. And the context of what they're talking about is the war on drugs. So it is Hitchens' position that the war on drugs might actually have been a good thing, not saying that all of it was good, but tough on crime actually would help those people who are struggling with drugs because it puts them in a place where they're not getting those drugs. Now, you can say what you want to about whether or not you have access to drugs in prison and all of that, but, but suffice to say, the point that he's trying to make, which I find is so often lost in social media circles, which is no surprise, which is why I have this show. We need to think for ourselves about these things. Uh, look, you, there might be small contradictions to his point, but it doesn't undermine uh, or small contradictions to what he is saying, but it doesn't undermine the ultimate point that he's trying to make, which is this, is that being tough on drug offenders is a benefit to them, whereas Perry wants to argue that there is more of a kind of soft glove approach to addiction and to people who have drug abuse, and that that is acknowledging that addiction is a disease and people who are diseased, you don't throw them into prison. You know, you might put them in a treatment facility or put them on medication, but you don't uh, but you don't throw them into prison. Now, just something real quick about the war on drugs and those who would say, well, the war on drugs was obviously a disaster. Well, I'm not so sure about that. Were, were there ways in which the war on drugs was ill conceived? Sure. But is the present way in which we're combating drugs with the Biden administration's um, kind of safe drug use approach, is that helping people? Well, go to Seattle, go to Portland, go to Philadelphia, and go look at the kind of drug zombies littering the streets all over those major cities. And you tell me if the safe promotion, the promotion of safe drug use is better for people than the war on drugs. Sure, the war on drugs caused petty criminals to go into jail and increase the incarceration rate exponentially. And then people even argue that it was also really devastating for people in marginalized communities and racial minorities and all of that. But the statistics are out in terms of petty drug crimes and how often those people who are accused of petty drug crimes turn into 
people who are not just drug abusers, but also people who usually end up selling those drugs in larger quantities than they might have had in their possession when they were arrested. So suffice to say, I, I don't know that the war on drugs is as bad as we often want to want to make it. And if we do want to take away the thing that is causing these people to really suffer and to struggle, I would argue that Peter Hitchens has a point here, that it might be important to take those drugs away. Um, beyond that, when we lean into kind of Matthew Perry's uh, argument here, his argument that addiction is a disease is actually kind of problematic because ultimately, if it is a disease, well, how do you treat a disease? Sure, you don't put them in the prison, but you also do something else. Well, you medicate a disease. You, you try to find medicine that will take care of that disease and get it out of your body, right? If you have cancer, you're gonna to try to find the medicine that will take care of that disease. And so here's the problem. One of the problems with calling addiction a disease is that it becomes a tool for big pharma simply to medicate people more. Now again, I don't know if drugs had anything to do with Matthew Perry's death, but I can honestly tell you for an addict to have anti-anxiety pills and anti-depression pills in his house is not a good thing. It's not a healthy thing for people. And of course, the response back to this is very often, and it was for Matthew Perry. Well, you must know something that the American Medical Association doesn't know because they classify addiction as a disease. Now, uh, that kind of credentialism might be useful if there was actually any objective facts associated with that. But what you have to know about the American Medical Association is that they are far beyond a medical association and really more like a left-wing propagandist group because the American Medical Association has gone on record for doing a couple of things. First of all, they want to make sure that they eliminate all work requirements for anybody that are on food stamps, WIC, or SNAP. So if you're getting free food from the government, then you don't, there doesn't need to be a work requirement. Now, we could argue about that all day long, but more importantly, the one thing that is inarguable is that the AMA should have absolutely nothing to say about work requirements for food stamps. Furthermore, they have something to say about immigration. And the AMA has gone on record saying that detention centers should be eliminated. So apparently they're willing to give us their immigration policy. And oddly enough, it sounds a lot like the left. And then finally, you are probably aware of the fact that the AMA has gone on record saying that we should eliminate gender on birth certificates. I guess we do that because biological science doesn't really matter to the AMA and a boy or a girl doesn't really know if they're a boy or a girl until a feeling hits them one day and then they can finally decide after cross-sex hormones and of course butchering their body, then they can finally decide whether they're a boy or a girl or, or not. So as you can see, the AMA is not really a medical association as much as they are a propagandistic association. But this brings us to the most important part of classifying uh, addiction as a, a disease. This is what Hitchens actually means when he says the fantasy of addiction. He doesn't mean that addiction is a fantasy. Of course, I would, I'm maybe putting words in his mouth, but at least I'll tell you what I think. Um, addiction isn't a fantasy in the sense that your, your body will become dependent upon a substance if you take it enough, and you have to have that substance, and your body craves that substance. But addiction is a fantasy in that it is a disease, not that it that your body can't become dependent on this chemical substance, but that we call it a disease. And why is that so problematic? Well, simply, a disease is not a, a choice, and an addiction to a substance is. And in the same way, the cure for a disease is not really a choice.
you choose to take medicine and you choose to try to change maybe your diet or something like that if you have a disease based upon whatever your doctor's recommendation is, but you hope that the medicine will do what it's supposed to do, you can make all the choices in the world, but it still may not work. Whereas addiction is vitally different. The moment you stop taking the thing that you're addicted to, your addiction is totally gone. It's purely cured by choice. What Hitchens is simply arguing here is that if we promote the idea that addiction is a disease, then we take away the thing that you need to truly get better. So this is important. If you really care about people, you will care about the way that we discuss addiction. If there was a drug associated with Matthew Perry's death, and even if there wasn't, I think the lesson here is that the way in which Perry decided to speak about drug addiction was not the best and most healthy way that we can talk about it, and I would argue, something that doesn't really reflect his own personal life and his own personal experiences. See, I think we have to change the way we think about addiction if we're truly going to help people, or maybe even if you're an addict yourself, overcoming that addiction. We have to change the way we think about addiction, and we have to start talking about it as a soul issue, as an issue of, of the heart. Um, if, if we can't solve our spiritual issues, we may not be able to solve our addiction issues. See, that's what happened for Matthew Perry, and it is the thing that he said worked the best for him and gave him two years of sobriety. I would argue that if he had come to the revelation that the Jesus of Scripture is the, the God that he met in that moment, that he would even have been able to kick his addiction entirely. I don't know for sure. All I can tell you is this, is that if we get to the heart of the problem, we can truly solve the problem. And our current conversation doesn't do that. And if we're willing to acknowledge the existence of the soul and have a conversation about the soul, then we might have to enter back into the conversation hard time. Because hard time gives you the opportunity to reap the consequences of your action in a very real way. And it puts you in a position to have a come to Jesus moment where you have to deal with the suffering and the difficulty of the decisions that you've made so that you finally have to bear that weight and say, hey, I need to start exploring other options other than what I've been doing because I need help. In hard time, whether we like it or not, can do that. So if we're actually willing to acknowledge the existence of the soul and the fact that the things that we do to the soul really, really matter, then we might need to enter that into the conversation as Matthew Perry was certainly willing to do for himself personally, but we need to do in a much broader fashion, even though our society is becoming more and more secular. And perhaps I'll give you another indication of how secular it has become as we look at the ongoing conflict with Israel and Hamas. Israel is now staging a ground war and they're sending in troops. And just recently, a Israeli soldier found a letter in the pocket of a Hamas soldier. And this is what it said. According to the New York Post, a handwritten note found on the body of a Hamas terrorist encouraged the jihadists to remove the heads, hearts, and livers of their Israeli victims. Israel's military said Israel Defense Forces spokesman Brigadier General Daniel Hagari was shown the horrific missive by an aide for the first time during an interview with CBS News. And it said this, You must sharpen the blades of your swords and be pure in your intentions before Allah. Know that the enemy is a disease that has no cure except beheading and removing the hearts and livers. Attack them, the note read in Arabic according to the Jerusalem Post. Now, you might easily come to the conclusion that this might just be mere propaganda from uh, the IDF or from the Jerusalem Post because this is coming from the source that it would most benefit if this were true. 
However, you have to also be willing to acknowledge the fact that this is exactly what we saw when Hamas invaded Israel in the first place. So this should come as no surprise to us. And it is a reminder to us what's really going on in Israel and what's really going on in Palestine right now has nothing to do with land. This is a religious battle and this is a genocidal war, especially on behalf of Hamas, who wants to totally destroy and eliminate all Zionists and all Jews. This is why the anti-Zionist movement that we see in America or wherever you find it is actually an anti-Semitic movement. When we say from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, and we conveniently forget the landmass that is a sovereign country in between, it is a clear call for intifada or holy war or for the elimination of Israel entirely, which is what these people which is what these people want. And that's what that letter absolutely reminds us of, that this is an ideological fight and it is not a terrestrial fight. Now we can see this even in our own backyard because there's been a rapid rise of protests, not only in England, but also in America here. And there seems to be a nefarious force behind the Free Palestine movement. I've even seen it on my own social media that oddly people who have never seen any of my stuff before will come in and, and give the most propagandistic take on what's going on um, in, in Palestine right now in Gaza. So the, uh, the strange presence of these Palestinian supporters online and in city streets seems interesting. Just the other day, there was a poll released from Harvard, and in that Harvard poll, it was very shocking. 51% of young people aged 18 to 24 believe that Hamas was justified in what they did on October 7th in Israel. So raping, uh, murdering, beheading people, including small children, um, that that was justified based upon a past oppression of of, of the Palestinians by Israelis. Here, I'm about to show you a clip of a bunch of San Francisco high schoolers who took the day off to protest in their schools and shout, free Palestine. So here's that. I'd be willing to bet you that not a single one of those kids could actually find Palestine or Israel on a map, but here they are chanting through their schools, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And of course, by now you are familiar with the Queers for Palestine movement, the most ironic movement in the history of the world, because we know that Palestine is a place where homosexuality is illegal, especially for men. Men can get up to 10 years in prison if they are not thrown off the roof first uh, for being gay. This is all a reminder to us and something that we need to hold close to us in this moment, regardless of whether or not you feel like it's a distraction or whether or not you feel like we should be isolationist or whether World War III is coming. Please remember some simple basic facts about all of this. Christians have been really good about going back and giving a history of the land and a history of uh, the Jewish people so that people will realize that the idiotic talking point about Palestinians owning the land before Israelis is just totally ludicrous and insane. It's not true. 
Um, Christians have been good about going through that history, but the problem with that is that it totally ignores the fact that this really isn't about land. This isn't about colonialization. This isn't about neocolonial forces. This is about the destruction of Western civilization. In other words, this is about blind ideology. This is not really even about Palestine. I mean, you could sub Palestine for any social justice cause you want to. I mean, BLM did that. Now they're supporting Palestine and it's the same kind of protests and the same kind of violent attacks on innocent people that were taking place during the BLM riots are taking place with free Palestine uh, protests in, in America. What we see through all of this is that this really isn't about racial minorities. This really isn't about social justice. This is about a proxy war for the destruction of Western civilization. This is about a bunch of neo-Marxists who hate this country and want to see it destroyed. Whether these people understand that, that that's the rational basis for this or not, whether they're useful idiots or true believers, that's what this is really all about. At the end of the day, it's not about land. And then secondly, the reason that this is happening, this kind of blind ideology is happening, is because we are in desperate need of something to believe in, in America and in the West again. When we remove God from our lives, as we have become a post-Christian nation, we've seen that this is happening, the void that's left doesn't remain empty. People will fill that void with something else, whether it's self-idolatry, another religion, or some other thing that they adore to the point of worship. They will fill that void. Everybody's worshiping something. And so the reason that useful idiots can be such a pawn in the hand of people who are authentic, true neo-Marxist is because they're so empty inside and desperately need something to believe in. Ultimately, when you see a bunch of kids roaming through a San Francisco high school campus and protesting for Palestine when they can't even find it on a map, what you're seeing there is kids who desperately need to believe in something. Kids who want to stand up for something but don't know actually what to believe in anymore. So they're easily duped into believing and protesting for a number of different things. And Palestine is just one of the many things that people are trying to fit into their lives. And it may not be that because some of you are saying, well, I don't even care what's going on in foreign policy. Well, congratulations, good for you. But you're doing the same thing too, one way or the other. You're filling the void with something else that should be there um, that, that can provide transcendent value a basis for objective morality, and a true experiential relationship with a true and living God. If you don't have that, it's only logical to believe, whether you believe in God or not, it's only logical to believe that if you were created for something bigger than yourself, that you will constantly be trying to fill that void with something. In other words, if, if the void is only big enough for God, we will constantly be screaming and experiencing the aches and pains of an empty soul. And perhaps that's exactly what's going on with these free, free Palestinian uh, protests. Now, um, if there is a cure for that, I think we, we need to go to our final segment where we'll talk a little bit more about that. So let's jump to Bible study with Democrats. Oh, God of pronouns. After a back and forth of self-nut kicking, Republicans have now decided to elect a speaker of the House. So the Freedom Caucus finally got tired of kicking themselves in the nuts, and then the Republican establishment finally got tired of kicking themselves in the nuts, and eventually they came together and decided upon a speaker of the House. And now that new speaker is a guy named Mike 
Johnson. I'm not going to pretend that I know very much about Mike Johnson, but I will only tell you that from what I initially have heard from this guy, I am very impressed. Before I tell you why, here's a clip of Mike Johnson accepting his role as Speaker of the House. All my colleagues here, what I told the Republicans in that room last night, I don't believe there are any coincidences in a matter like this. I believe that Scripture, the Bible, is <clears throat> very clear. That, that God is the one that raises up those in authority. He raised up each of you, all of us. And, and I believe that God has ordained and allowed each one of us to be brought here for this specific moment in this time. This is my belief. I believe that each one of us has a huge responsibility today to use the gifts that God has given us to serve the extraordinary people of this great country, and they deserve it. 62, that, that our national motto, in God we trust, was ad adorned above this rostrum. And if you look at the little uh, guide that they give uh, tourists and constituents who come and, and, and visit the house, if you turn in there to about page 14 in the middle of that guide, it tells you the history of this. And it says very simply, these words were placed here above us. This motto was placed here as a rebuke of the Cold War era philosophy of the Soviet Union. That philosophy was Marxism and communism, which begins with the premise that there is no God. This is a critical distinction that is also articulated in our nation's birth certificate. We know the language well, the famous second paragraph that we used to have children memorize in school, and, and they don't do that so often anymore, but they should. G.K. Chesterton was the famous British philosopher and statesman, and he said one time, America is the only nation in the world that is founded upon a creed. And he said it's listed with almost theological lucidity in the Declaration of Independence. What is our creed? We hold these truths to be self-evident. Even after that speech, as good as it was, you might be thinking to yourself, why do I care? Who cares? Just another politician. I want to tell you why I don't think so. But by the way, you should know I posted uh, about this on my social media, and that's kind of the general response that I got from a lot of people. Whether it was right or left, who cares? It's just another politician. So you might argue that the only reason I care about another politician occupying another useless position in Washington is because I am a Christian and Mike is a Christian. I would turn that around on you and say, perhaps the only reason you're saying that and the only reason you say you don't care is because you are not a Christian. I'll take a moment to argue why I do think you should care, regardless of why you say you don't care. First, let me suggest that I understand it's almost a losing battle to argue that you should care if your argument is I don't care. It's hardly a position of any intellectual integrity. I don't care might as well be I am lazy. I don't think for myself. I have a Netflix show to watch. In other words, I pretend not to be concerned so I don't have to actually contradict my belief system because that takes effort. All those things are perhaps the worst kind of head-in-the-sand response to the present state of our culture. Why should you care? Because our culture is in complete collapse. That's why. Our culture continues to struggle under the weight of being found upon Christian values and ideas and the pressure of an anti-Christian secular worldview that continues to chip away at those ideas. You can argue that it is the church itself that has caused this falling away. I'm not sure that's true, but even if it is, the numbers are clear. People are no longer attending church in the same way that they used to. At the same time, we see people fall away from religious observance. We are seeing suicide rates skyrocket, drug use skyrocket, anxiety and depression skyrocket, mass shootings, and more. Ask yourself if you really believe that legal gun ownership is the reason more mass shootings are taking place. Or could it be that we have a hole in our soul? This is why I included this 
announcement about Mike Johnson being the speaker in Bible study with Democrats. An honest skeptic has to acknowledge the need for God and religion in Western society based upon the sickness of our culture. But Democrats don't. Mike Johnson is labeled a Christian nationalist or right-wing extremist because he quotes the Bible. Let's get the lay of the land here real quick. Dress your boy like a girl, chop off his privates, fabricate a fake vagina, and give him an experimental cross-sex hormone, and you're not an extremist. The guy reading the Bible, he's the extremist. Sure. This is why I saved this last story for Bible study with Democrats. Democrats are the ones who say they care about people. If there is any sliver of humanity in them at all, they'll put aside their bias against Christians and Christianity and admit the stats have already been put forth in such a convincing manner that it's really not arguable. Religious people are happier, less suicidal, and more charitable than any other subsection of society. In other words, Christianity is good for our society. And since all religions are not made the same, let me be really clear. I'm not arguing that all religions are good. I am specifically speaking about Christianity and its benefit to culture. But let's also not make the mistake of thinking that there is any such thing as an irreligious person. I don't care if you call yourself an atheist. Everybody is worshiping something. The only question is, is what are you worshiping? And is it worth worshiping? Scientific naturalism puts your faith in a whole bunch of theoretical positions, none of which can actually explain the origin of life or the origin of the universe. Christianity, on the other hand, not only does both of those things, but it also provides a moral basis by which you can live a life of human flourishing. The point is not do religions matter, it's simply which one matters the most. The, the godless kind of self-worship we see in our politics today is part of the problem. Today, we find a recipe for rejoicing, and that reason is Mike Johnson. He's a breath of fresh air. His unapologetic desire to express his personal, personal faith should be refreshing to everyone. For once, we have a politician who is not willing to lie. I know, crazy, right? I know many will reject this, but there is a large incentive to push away your belief system and to pretend that you don't have one when you get into politics. Maybe not in the past, but certainly today, all of your handlers are going to tell you, you know, there's... There's a, a good way to practice your religion, and that's privately, because you don't want to alienate your constituents if they don't happen to share your beliefs, so be very quiet about it. In other words, for politicians who fight against that and rather express their faith openly and publicly, they are committing an unparalleled act of courage. Moreover, they may even be committing an act of unparalleled love. If you believe, as Mike Johnson does, and as I do, that the Christian faith connects people to Christ and helps them in this life and in the next, then you will want to share it as much as possible. When you believe that our society could be so much better and many more people would flourish in society if they valued Christian ideas, you would want a guy like Mike Johnson to come to power. More importantly, when you see a guy say stuff like he has, you get the sense finally that we have a politician that might actually tell you the truth. Check it out. Someone asked me today in the media, they said, it's curious, people are curious, what does Mike Johnson think about any issue under the sun? I said, well, go pick up a Bible off your shelf and read it. That's, that's my worldview. That's what I believe. And so it's, it's things like that that make me more hopeful than ever before that our country can change. Even if you disagree with him or hate the God he believes in, which by the way is a little weird if you don't think he exists, it's possible to know that Johnson seems bold and seems honest. That's the impression you get when you hear him. We'll have to see if he disappoints like most of them, sure. 
But at first glance, I like what I see, and it seems different from the typical narcissistic slime monsters that DC tends to produce. That's why those who oppose him or pretend that his appointment is no big deal need Jesus. Thanks so much for watching. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, and go with God.